Some of you know this, but before every sermon, I usually uh, drive over to the lake and, um, and practice my sermon because <clears throat> if you go up there the first time without practicing, it can be pretty rough. And, and sometimes it still is pretty rough. But uh, today was <clears throat> filled with a lot of emotions, so I hope that, I hope that it's not so emotional when I'm, when I'm speaking. But I want to, um, I want to give a, a message from, I think, the place that... Uh, that I think the heart for this community is, is centered on. And so I don't really know how to do like a whole speech here to, to say goodbye. So this is my, I'm going to give a sermon. And, uh, and I think that it will uh, do well for us. So let me read from Ephesians 3, 14 through 19 as kind of our jumping off place. <clears throat> for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let's pray. God, we'd ask uh, today that you would make your word uh, come alive, that your spirit would illuminate it for us so that we can see clearly, um, so that we can know the depths of your love for us. And um, God, I just ask that you would give uh, just a special anointing of your love um, and the Holy Spirit in this room uh, today. Amen. So about um, 12 years ago, we moved to Chicago and we started going to a church called Missio Dei. Uh, it was the, uh, a church that we did not expect to be going to. Uh, it was, I was at the time, I believe 28 years old and I felt like the youngest person in the room. Uh, it was young and vibrant and crazy and uh, it's kind of exactly the opposite of what we were looking for. We were looking for something rooted, multi-generational, multi-ethnic, uh, you know, filled with all sorts of things uh, that, that, that Monsieur Day really wasn't offering at, at that time. But uh, one of the first Sundays that we were there, there was a message given and a video shown and a phrase that was repeated over and over again that caught my attention and to this day has really uh, stayed with me. And the, the phrase was, the love of God is folly. The love of God is folly. If you look up the word folly, it means it lacks of good sense. It's foolish. The image that they were trying to give was that the love of God was, in many ways, illogical, overwhelming, impossible to understand. And the last line that I remember uh, hearing all those years ago in the video that they showed that day was this, the love of God is folly, but the folly of our God beats the genius of all men. So I want to read to you verses 17b through 19 in that passage again. And then I want to share with you about the love of God. 
Paul says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So you may say, this is a, why, why are you giving us a message that we've heard since we, well, maybe if you grew up in church that you have heard since you were a baby, that God loves you. Uh, well, this is the one thing I want to leave you with. I tell my kids that I love them all the time. I tell them probably like 10 times a day. Uh, so much so that Sandy will say, I know, Dad, and kind of roll her eyes. And, and, and I think that's good. I like the eye roll because it's so clear. She actually heard me, right? The reason I do that is that because I actually love her <laughs> and I love them. But it matters that you have a parent in your life, all the studies show, that love you. It roots you as a child when you have a parent that deeply and passionately and unconditionally loves you. It gives confidence to kids. It brings a steadiness and a calmness and a stature to them. It's necessary to grow in emotional security and emotional intelligence. It's important to develop appropriate physical relationships at a young age and as they mature and grow. And I say it also because it's so easy to forget. Just this last week, I was picking up my kids from school and uh, we were walking back to the car, and at one moment, Maze and I had walked uh, out of sight from Senny, headed to the car. And the same girl that rolled my eyes, saying, uh, I when I said, I love you, like the 10th time that day, starts screaming <laughs> and crying. Where'd you go? I thought you left. <laughs> she was, she's punching me. She's hitting me. She's so angry because she thought that she, she was scared. She didn't know where I had gone, where we had left to. She couldn't figure out where we were. I got in the car. I said, I turned around. I said, Sonny, I'm never going to leave you. I, I, I love you. I care about you. We're not, this, like, I'm your parent. I'm your dad, right, forever. Like, we're not, I'm not just going to leave. And she goes, I know, but you shouldn't have done that anyways, right? So this message is not this morning about how you should have love for one another, Okay, that's a good thing. But that's not what this message is about. This isn't a prayer this morning or a message for us to love God more, for you to love God. Instead, this message is that we would know the depth of God's love for us as seen in Jesus. That we'd have power, Paul says, to the point of prevailing over something that we have in our minds mentally about what love is really like. The power to prevail over our ignorance that sometimes says that God doesn't love you. The power over confusion about whether God really loves you in your life. Paul is saying, I want you to have power. I want you to be rooted. I want you to know how, how long and deep and the depth of the love that God has for you. So today I'm going to share something about myself that theologically that you may not know. And for some, it might seem obvious, and while others might have questions and need it to be explained. All right, you ready for it? This is very, very important to me. And it's not a joke. 
I interpret all of the Bible through the person of Jesus. I believe that God in his character and actions and who he is does not change, is not subject to change. That's called immutability. And I secondly believe that God is perfectly revealed in Jesus. I want you to listen to Hebrews 1, 3, because I think that this will give you exactly what I mean, okay? For some of you that may not quite grasp what I'm trying to say. This is what Hebrews 1, 3 says. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. And listen to this part. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, After he had provided for purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So when I read the Bible, this is what that means. And try to understand what God is like. I can say confidently that Jesus is what God is like. God has always been like Jesus. And there's never been a time that God was not like Jesus. Jesus is the very word, the primary word, the final word on what God is like. Jesus is God's summary statement. God cannot be something different than Jesus. I'm not speaking here about them being different persons of the Trinity or having a different essence. Of course, I believe those things. But I'm speaking here morally and theologically that Jesus reveals God and God is perfectly revealed in Jesus as the very revelation of God, his son, the word made flesh. Got it? (laughs) So what I'm trying to tell you today is that you should define yourself who is radically beloved by God. Any other identity is an illusion And I know that many of you are are nodding your heads, but I want you to tell you this today because in in the days, in the weeks, in the months, in the years to come, I think you'll question that. Because I think that there are a couple things that happen. And they're just prevailing because the love of God is so unique. It's so, it's folly. (laughs) It's so different. It's so hard to understand. So many of you will fall into this trap. Still, you'll believe that you need to get your house in order before you let God love and accept you. We find it really hard to live in a world where we don't get what we deserve. I know all of you think that you live in a world full of grace, but we expect in every single relationship in our lives to get what we deserve. We are much more comfortable with karma than we are with God's love. You want to pay your own way. You want to do something to earn God's favor. It's the way that you attracted your spouse, your girlfriend, It's the way that uh, you've probably attained success in a job or in life. Somehow, what you have done has led to you getting something more, something better, something right. Right. 
You want to pay your own way. That is why the unconditional, the folly love of God is both unbelievable and terrifying. My faith, my effort, my belief, my love, but Jesus meets us where we are and just asks us to receive. The second thing that people do is this. When you start talking about the love of God so much, they'll start to say, they'll start to get a little nervous that you're going to forget about sin. In fact, some people will actually say, well, yes, God loves us, but sin changed everything, meaning God feels different about us because of sin. And I would disagree with that. Sin does not change how God feels about humans. God's love is not dependent upon our behavior. When I sit Maze and Senny down on my lap and tell them that I love them, I don't recount all of their mistakes and say, you know, remember when you did this? Remember when you did that? I still love you. Now, sometimes when they're in the midst of doing something wrong, I'll say, you know what? Even though you're doing this thing, I still love you. (laughs) Even though you're acting like an idiot, I still love you, right? (laughs) She she says that to me, yeah. But her love for me, her love for me is not unconditional, Jason. That's why I'm using the parent illustration. That love is earned. I just tell them that they're loved Sin doesn't change how God feels about humans. God's love is not dependent upon our behavior. This is so important. God despises sin, but he does not despise you. God can separate his love for you from your actions of disobedience. I want you to hear this. Please listen to this. This is so important. This is like the basis of everything that we believe as Christians and what we should uphold in this church. It is possible to unconditionally love someone that you disagree with or that harms you or that disapproves of you or that even despises you. So God can hate bigotry and misogyny and alcoholism and murder and lying and abuse and jealousy and stealing and gossip and manipulation and sexual immorality and greed and abrasiveness and crude talk, but he can love you unconditionally. These things can be true at the same time. And until we grasp that nuance and that kind of love and receive that kind of love, we will never step into mature faith. If you assume that God still looks at you with disgust or has ever looked at you with disgust, disappointment, frustration, anger, that will always be present in his life you are mistaken. Some people will say, if you talk about God this way, you're just making God the way you want him to be. I don't think that's true. Actually, in some ways, to talk about sin and kind of start with how condemned you all are actually works really well when you're preaching. Fear is a powerful motivator. But I think the primary reason fear ends up being a motivator instead of love is a misunderstanding of God in relation to sin. See, God revealed in Jesus wasn't someone that couldn't stand to be in the presence of sin. I think that's what we often hear, right? And I think we're trying to uphold the holiness of God, and I get that. That's like so, so important. But this idea that God could not be in the presence of sin is actually incorrect. 
because Jesus was described as the exact representation of God, as the one who hung out with sinners. And those weren't just people like, you know, the nice people, right? <laughs> They're called sinners in the Bible because they were the worst people. And Jesus was friends with them. So how could God not be in the presence of sin and yet hang out with sinners? The God revealed in Jesus gave up his life because out of love. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God came to earth in the midst of our sin. So that can't be the thing keeping us from God. We want to uphold the, the holiness of God. But if we say that God and sin can't exist in the same place, we've absolutely failed to understand Christ's incarnation. God doesn't turn away from sinners in disgust, but moves towards us, bringing us his redemptive presence. David Benner says this, unsurprisingly, if we assume that God is preoccupied with sin, then we also adopt the same focus. You might even think you honor God by ta taking sin as seriously as you do. Sometimes you judge other Christians by how seriously they seem to treat sin. Often they become uncomfortable with the emphasis on divine love. They feel an urgent need to balance this by highlighting God's hatred of sin. Unfortunately, while they may give intellectual assent to God's love, they often experience very little of it. What a different relationship, what a different relationship begins to develop when you realize that God is head over heels in love with you. God is simply giddy about you. He loves you deeply, recklessly, extravagantly, just as you are. The wages of sin of death, but God is love. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. But anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love. In the New Testament, yeah. <clears throat> so this is the story of the whole Bible but we see it especially revealed in Jesus. We were doing a, a study on 2 Samuel uh, this fall, or actually this summer. It went into the fall because it was long. And at one point, Absalom, who's David's son, rebels against him, tells all kinds of lies, tries to get a, a rival army to kill David and take his throne. Absalom's David's son. Until the point where Absalom dies, David is saying, do not kill my son. <laughs> and he, after he is killed, he weeps and mourns and cries for days. And all the people are saying, well, why? You need to like suck it up, King David. Like these men just fought for you so that you could keep your kingdom and defeated your son. And he's like, my son, my son, Absalom, right? Can you see that his son had done the worst possible things you could ever do? In fact, at one point, he sleeps with all of David's wives and concubines. How weird is that? And David is weeping at his death out of love for his son. 
These stories of, 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 of pictures of David as like this the God, man after God's own heart and an image of what the Messiah would be like should stick with us in these moments. Because these stories continue in the New Testament and the images that Jesus give of what God is like and what the love of God is like are so crystal clear and you have to look at them. And you have to, to like assume them in your, in your soul if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. The images in just one chapter of Luke, which we studied a few months ago, one is of uh, a, a lost sheep, Right? There's, there's 100 sheep, one's lost, and the shepherd leaves all the other sheep and goes and climbs through all the thistles and through the mountains and over the riverbanks just to find that one sheep. That image is what God is like. In the person of Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, became a servant gave up the riches of heaven in order to pursue you and ultimately die on the cross for your sin and mine. The second image is even more powerful. It's of a lost son. And I've always looked at the parable of the lost son from the side of the son. And I think, oh, it's, God's amazing. They, the father, isn't it amazing that the father would forgive the son? Isn't it amazing God's grace? Isn't it amazing God's mercy? Isn't it incredible how the son that had told his father that he wishes he was dead, took his money, spent it all, wasted it on wild living, and now comes back with his head between, you know, his, or his tail between his legs and his head down, begging for forgiveness, and look at God as this merciful God. It's amazing. It's an amazing story, but I want you to look at it from a different perspective. I look at it now as a father myself. And I'm able to look at it from the father's perspective. And you know what I think? All I can think of when I read that story now is of course he forgives the son. Of course, the father is waiting each day. Of course, he's always on the lookout, looking at the horizon, hoping that it's not just a mirage, that there really is someone out there returning home. This man wasted half of his father's inheritance. And all I can think of is, of course, he doesn't care about the money. Of course, he doesn't lose his status as a son. His son returns home. I can't think of a greater joy as a father. See, the brother doesn't get it. He's thinking about it as a relationship like karma, right? Do good things, you'll get good things in return. I've served you all my life, dad. And now you're welcoming back this brother that made a mess of all of our lives and caused you all this anxiety and all this worry and all this fear and all this regret. And he says, absolutely. <laughs> I've been waiting every day since he left for my son to come home. 
So what does this mean? I think there's two things that I, I want to say as just a brief application today. C.S. Lewis has this famous quote. He says, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And if we're going to exist in a world where every split second is claimed by Satan, just as it is God, we must, we must understand the depth of God's love for us. This love that is impossible to understand. See, people say you are loved. You know, that's like a common thing now, right? You are, you are loved. You are beautiful. But I am telling you, all of that love that you hear is conditional. When I tell you that Jesus loves you, that God loves you, I'm telling you something that is not conditional. It's not karma-centered love. It's the world's love is conditional. Agree with me in this way. Act in this way. Do these things. And you are loved. Jesus says, despite, like wherever you're at, you crawled in here today. You are loved. And that needs to be centered. Satan in the world is fighting for you to believe something different. But as Francis of Assisi says, I am who I am in the eyes of God, nothing more and nothing less. The second thing that it means, and this is kind of tried to be the center of who we are as a church. It means that there aren't appropriate recipients of the gospel. See, every church says that. They're real happy when people start to say the right things and start to do the right things, start to act the right way. They're more than happy that, to promote people when they repent and believe, right? What I think we have longed for this church to be different is an expansion for who can receive the love of God before their life is fixed, before they're repentant, before they are saying the right things, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of death. Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. He came to subvert the world as we know it. That subversive love, that love that isn't based on reciprocity or karma, that radical love that challenged the status quo, that threatened the core values of society is what led to his love going all the way, even all the way to the cross. So I don't have uh, anything else for you guys but the love of God. And I pray that, that you will feel love today. 
So would you stand with me? I'm going to read a passage of scripture and I want you to receive these words. If you would uh, close your eyes and if you're willing to open up your hands. And I pray that these words uh, would be ringing in your ears for the days and the weeks and the months to come. And when you doubt the love of God, they will ring in your mind. That God is like Jesus. And Jesus has gone all the way. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is it? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. <clears throat> Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors of him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> 